What's the Story podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped has taken over the world and is now available in all of Europe. For our listeners in Ireland, the UK and all across Europe, you can now purchase Manscaped products. So get yourself the right tools for your family jewels. We're all friends here. Let's, let's be a little bit honest with each other. We've all tried to give ourselves a little tidy up, probably using the scissors and going delicately around the edges. Some of us might have tried a different razor that nicked us or scratched us. Some of us might have even ventured into the world of hair removal cream, which probably left your tallywhacker on fire, irritation and itch, and you praying you never have to go through that again. And ladies, I'm not just talking to the lads here. If you're sick of your fella stuff, looking like an angry Rastafarian, then Manscaped is what you need. The Lawnmower 3.0 electric trimmer is the greatest male grooming trimmer on the planet. If you haven't tried it yet, you're missing out. This third generation trimmer is waterproof. It features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce those grooming accidents we talked about and the battery will last up to 90 minutes. The good news is the Lawnmower 3.0 is included in Manscaped's Perfect Package 3.0 kit. That kit also includes Crop Preserver, otherwise known as their ball deodorant. It also comes with Crop Reviver, Manscaped's own ball toner. Use these on your boys below the waist and you're going to feel refreshed and ready for anything. The Perfect Package 3.0 also comes with their Shed Travel Bag and anti-chafing boxer briefs to complement not only their Perfect Package, but your package too. Head on over to manscaped.com and put in the code WTSPOD to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Yeah, that's right, 20% off your order and free shipping when you use the code WTSPOD at manscaped.com. Head on over, check it out. Your balls will thank you. Hello everybody and welcome to WTS Pod. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Merrigan. How are you, Danny? I am doing great, Graham. We are recording on a Saturday morning, which is not like us at all. Yeah, I'm wrecked. And I really, re- I really regret hitting record now because I just realised I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> oh no, well, hurry up, let's do this. Yeah, but before we do that, Graham, just need to check with you. How's your groin grass getting on? <laughs> growing grass there taken, is none have you taken the lawnmower 3.0 to trim those hedges oh of course you have my manscaped lawnmower 3.0 has got rid of all the growing grass indeed yeah i'm the same i'm the same and uh, i have to say i never How are your town halls smooth graham smooth and refreshed thanks to Lovely. manscaped and um their their ball toner but i have to say i never thought i'd need a razor that had a torch on it but me I don't think I could ever go back to any other kind of razor. It's um, It might seem like a small touch, Graham, but small touches make all the difference, and anybody who is trimming their groin region will understand that. And don't forget your ball deodorant as well. 
Absolutely, that's it. Yeah, check out manscaped.com, lads. Use the code WTSPOD and get 20% off and free shipping. Anyway, back to what we're discussing this week. Um, Russia. Russia, yeah, we are. We're talking to the great Brian McDonald. And um, look, to be honest with you, we might as well just jump straight into it. Yeah, here we go. Here's Brian McDonald. Delighted to say that we have been joined by Brian McDonald, who is a journalist based in Russia and working for RT. Uh, Privet, Brian. Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> oh, you speak some wow. Oh, uh, no, I mean, like, uh, that's probably the best you'll get out of me. Other than that, I'm gonna just end up saying, uh, like, Barsok, Sosiska, Gidea Toilet. That's kind of the extent of my Russian, to be honest with you. <laughs> Pretty much, that is it. Yeah, for people who don't speak Russian, I've basically just said, Badger sausage, where's the jacks? Yeah, you just pay <laughs> Of course, yeah. Are you fluent yeah. in Russian, Brian? I I hate to claim that because I it's such a difficult language and I didn't come to it until I was um, already in my 30s. I wouldn't claim that. I say I'm competent in it. I wouldn't go that far. I think it's very arrogant to claim that you're fluent in anything unless other people say it for you. But, <laughs> but I, don't claim, I, I don't claim fluency. No, competency is what I'm aiming for. <laughs> you, you could hold down a conversation in a bar anyway. Yeah, but I wouldn't be able to hold down a conversation about the poetry of Pushkin or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even a conversation, a conversation about, you know, what's the best beer on tap, maybe, yeah, or, you know, in a bar, or, or who's going to win the football tomorrow, but I'm not going to have an in-depth conversation about the enlightenment of Dostoevsky or something. <laughs> Definitely not. You know, I, of course. Uh, Danny will tell you that I struggle with the English language. I say cul-de-sac. Yeah. Uh, that's because you're a native Irish speaker, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. A, na- a native Irish speaker. If that uh, is just so, it's my excuse when I get stuff wrong in English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, if if native native Irish is what they speak around Ballybrack in Dublin, then yeah, that's great for you. There you go. Just the, the, the Ballybrack dialect. <laughs> exactly. Um, I remember when we were in school, all this stuff about Munster and Connacht Irish. I never saw the difference, to be honest with you. But anyway. Yeah, not the same. It's all like, yeah, it's all it's all the same to me. And uh, when I say all the same, I mean I understand very little of it and have very little time for any of it. It's 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 not something that ever piqued me interest in school. Now, I regret that we don't speak it better, but that's life. That's history. Nothing we can do about it. So that, that's true. That's true. Just blame the Brits. <laughs> that's your default setting, Mero. Yeah, just blame the Brits. Um, for a hundred years, eh? Yeah. Brian, the, the world is in a. It's in a, an interesting place at the moment, and I'd be interested to hear kind of like you're you're obviously a journalist based in Russia, um, tracking kind of what's happening in America and the the madness around what Donald Trump is up to. Is this is is Putin just rubbing his hands with glee at what looks to be the most unstable American politician that we've ever seen? There are myriad ways to look at this, okay? Mm. See, in some ways, Putin is obviously enjoying watching America's discomfort, but in other ways, he's not, because obviously there are ramifications for Russia of this madness as well. Because, for example, um, let's go to the negatives first. Trump has destroyed basically all the arms controls agreements. And in a few months' time, the START treaty uh, expires. A new START is a treaty that limits the development of nuclear weapons is a very important treaty. And because Trump is basically a destructive kind of guy, he's 
let this treaty lapse. And it basically means from, I think, January, everybody can start developing nukes again, which, of course, nobody's talking about. And it's very dangerous. So obviously, the Russians don't want that. Jesus and Russia, Russia doesn't want a new arms race because, first of all, like Putin is relatively sane and doesn't want a, a nuclear war. And secondly, the country just can't afford it. I mean, especially with COVID right now, they can't afford yeah. to spend billions of dollars on, 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 uh, on, on nuclear weapons that they don't need. Um, so Trump, in that sense, Putin would rather Trump just disappears in the morning and some adults come into the room that he can actually talk to. Um, the problem is, though, that Joseph Biden is extremely hostile on a personal level. Um, another reason, because he's basically a product of the Cold War, he's 78, you know. Um, also, the Democratic Party in America blame Russia for Hillary Clinton losing the 2016 election. Now, I personally think that's insanity, but that's what they believe. Um, that was their way of probably deflecting from their own failures back in 2016, the same way that, as you just mentioned a minute ago, Graham, a lot of Irish people tend to blame the Brits for our failures, even when they aren't directly responsible, you know? Um, and that means that it would be very hard politically for Joe Biden to carry the Democratic Party towards some kind of detente with Russia because there's an ingrained kind of dislike there. In much the same way, it'd be very difficult for maybe, well, maybe not now, but in the past, it would have been difficult for a Sinn Féin, or Sinn Féin leader to drag the party to a detente with England, for example, you know, in, in that kind of way. Um, but of course, watching America tear itself apart is certainly, there's a kind of black comedy in it for Russians, given that they've had so many crises over the last, even 30, well, let's say in the 80s and 90s anyway. Um, obviously, the American thing is not comparable. Also, there's a, a feeling as well that, you know, America lectured Russia, and not just Russia, a lot of East European countries about democracy and freedom and values, and we're the best, and you must do what we do. You guys might be a little bit too young to remember that, but it was a very prevalent narrative in the 1990s um, and 80s. And, you know... Now America's own democracy appears to be in a sort of peril. So who are the Americans now to come to Moscow and lecture the Russians on how they run their version of democracy or political process, if you know what I mean? And, and there would be an element of that. But so it, it, it's not fair to say, Danny, that he's rubbing his hands with glee. It's fair to say that he's, he might find it funny but there's a real world consequence to this kind of carry on, because if America goes into a massive political crisis now and Trump has to either be forcibly removed from office or refuses to vacate the office, that could create, as you know, Ireland's very worried about it, too. That could create a very big political issue in the world's. I mean, but that's interesting. I was just about to say the world's most powerful country. But many observers in Moscow actually think that China has passed out America this year, by the way as number one. They think that the effect yeah. of the pandemic probably brought it forward by 10 years, what was going to happen anyway, you know? Jesus, yeah. It's See, it's it's mad, because th th there are some pockets of kind of media that you'd hear, and that, that and like that kind of, you, you, you touched on the, the Democratic Party being, you know, definitely anti-Russia. Um, some pockets of kind of the media you're hearing are saying, this plays into Putin's hands. This is exactly what Russia wants to see. America in turmoil, you know, and, and kind of what you're saying, then is is almost a counterweight to that. And is, is this just a case of classic kind of Western media trying to paint Russia 
in that negative light that we've seen over the years? I think it's a case of Western media <clears throat> trying to project its own obsessions onto Russia as a sort of, you know, um, elephant in the room or, you know, comic mm. book bad guy. Um, like Putin, as you know, I mean, I would like to start by saying I'm not a Putin supporter. I'm very neutral. My job is to appraise what he does, not to say whether I love him or hate him. Mm. Um, but the point is that Putin is definitely unfairly caricatured in the West and in the media that most of your listeners would consume. He's sort of held up as a sort of Bond villain, you know, that lives in some kind of cave somewhere and, you know, directs the world for nefarious purposes. In reality, he's a political leader um, with supporters, with opponents, who has a kind of soft authoritarian style um, in a country that is, you know, has its own problems that he has to deal with day to day. Uh, don't forget that he can't sit there all day worrying about what's going on in Washington. He has to worry about what's going on in Vladivostok and Omsk and uh, Novosibirsk and various Russian cities that many people might not even have heard of. Um, so, like, it's not true to say that he's got nothing else to worry about than what's happening in America. Uh, what is true, though, is that a lot of countries that have been lectured to, like I said previously, by the Americans over the years, are certainly seeing a bit of sort of shade and in this. You know, that there's a sort of like, you know, uh, they're taking comfort perhaps in the American displeasure. But... Maybe it's a wake-up call for the Americans, too, that they need to have a look at themselves and realize their own system is not perfect. Because I would say the Irish system or the German system is far more democratic than the American system, for example. I mean, what have they got? They've got a two-party state, and, yeah. and, even, the, and even the presidency is not, is not decided by the majority. It's decided by some weird college. Whereas in Ireland, for example... Yeah, whereas, example, in Ireland, we have a weird system, too, in some ways with proportional representation. But look... A lot of Russians would say that when Americans say we have a democracy, Russians would say you don't have a democracy, you have an oligarchy, in the sense that it costs billions of dollars to run for election in America. Whereas, for example, in Ireland, um, it's not, I mean, you, you can have situations where, I, I know it's not necessarily a good thing, but the Healy Rays or the Tony Gregory's years ago in Dublin were a small time independence actor can find themselves in the national parliament. Uh, Obviously, that can't happen in America. So the Russians would argue that they don't really have democracy in the first place. Mm. You know. Yeah, yeah, and look, it is. And I think we we had a uh, Philip O'Connor, uh, journalist for, uh, based based in Stockholm, on uh, last mm. week ta talking about that exact thing that the American system is uh, funky to say the least. Uh, the it's 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 mad. Like what you said there about this kind of thing, this image of Putin being this kind of Bond villain. Is uh, like it, it's it's true because you know in like sometimes he is that Bond villain. Sometimes then it's also that kind of figure to poke a little bit of fun at when his kind of annual holiday photos come out or those propaganda shots <laughs> we've seen of him. I think mm -hmm. I think he was he was hang gliding at one stage. He was uh -huh. uh, horseback riding topless. We, we've seen all mm -hmm. these. He, the bottom, he went in a submarine to the. C can bottom I just of the say lake. something about them? Can I just say something about them for a second? Yeah. Can I just cut across you for a second? You can laugh at them all you like, but there's a reason why they're done. It's for domestic consumption. Most of yeah. the reason, for example, the, the hang gliding episode you spoke about, mm. that was done to promote a, um, a bird sanctuary uh, because the idea was that it was, he was setting up a bird sanctuary for migrating birds. And the idea was to kind of draw attention to this, to raise money for it, for example. Um, and yeah. the stuff going around the tiger with his shirt off, 
uh, shooting at tigers. That was, again, a conservation thing. That was about tagging tigers so they could be tracked, you know, from poachers in the Far East, for example. So it looks ridiculous to Western eyes. And if I was still living in Ireland, I would say, Jesus, what's your man at in Russia? You know, going, <laughs> going around topless with a gun. But, yeah. but to the Russian public, there's an internal propaganda uh, narrative that's not just about Putin. It's also about, in these cases, conservation and getting people interested in nature and blah, blah. So it's not so simplistic as to say he just loves taking his top off and running around the <laughs> you know what I mean you know uh, absolutely I mean? yeah and and I think but I, I think that's kind of that's what I'm saying and in one hand you do you get that where sometimes he is a figure to, to poke fun at because of that or at least it's, it's a crutch that kind of you know is used to, to be like should look at this guy and then the other hand then very quickly paints him in a much darker light of a man who doesn't tolerate political opponents a man who has, you know, he, he interferes in media, and some would say he's he's ordered the, you know, the untimely demise of certain journalists and that kind of thing. Like, is is that something that gets talked about in Russia? Is that something that's widely, or, or is it just non-existent in terms of the narrative over there? Yeah, the, the the Russian media is far, I would argue, is far more varied than the Irish media because. If you look at Ireland right now, you have three daily broadsheet papers. You have the Examiner, the Times, and the Independent, yeah? yeah. And they're all essentially the same, if you don't mind me saying so. They're all broadly liberal centrists, yeah? And they're mm. broadly supportive of Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. Would that be correct to say? The three uh, yeah. papers? Yeah, right. Examiner Whereas probably is, is pushing away, moving away from that. But yeah, I, I, I get your point. Okay, um, and then even the Sunday papers, the Business Post, the the, yeah. the Sunday Independent, and then the British-owned papers are all broadly pro Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, for example. Mm. Um, the the uh, the point I'm trying to make is that in Russia you've got a really varied uh, setup. You've got centrist independent newspapers like Commerçant and RBK in Moscow, which are really can be you know critical of Putin and and very uh, neutral. Then you've got newspapers like MK and Komsomolska Pravda, which are basically kissing his ass, so to speak. You know, they're mm. really supportive of this status quo. They're, they're owned by supporters of his and so on and so forth. Then you've got the state media that is um, not exclusively supportive, but overwhelmingly supportive of, you know, the Putin administration or the Putin ideology and um, then you have some really hostile media outlets that are totally against them like echo of moscow which is a radio station novaya gazeta an independent newspaper um you know and and, and you have uh, various online stuff and alexei navalny who you're probably going to mention at some stage has a massive uh, online media presence he's got his own news channel um you know which sometimes they try to clamp down but they haven't shut it down um, and yeah. he has his own um large uh you know presence across social media and it's not just him there's other opposition people that aren't so popular in the west that have their own thing so it's not true to say that the media is completely controlled what is true to say is that their versions of rte if you like you know the state mm. media is very tightly controlled but some people in ireland might argue that the same situation pertains at home uh, yeah. to a certain degree as well and <clears throat> um, obviously not to the same extent but yeah but that is true that is true to say um so the situation is far more nuanced than you think. Then what you have is you have a lot of Western state-funded media operating in Russia, like the American state-run media, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is called Svoboda here, Freedom. Um, you have uh, 
BBC Russia, which is a, quite popular here, uh, BBC Naruskom. And then you have various other weird stuff like sponsored by the EU and uh, and, 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 and exiled oligarchs like Mikhail Khodorkovsky. And, and so there's a very rich and varied media tapestry here, far more than people would realize. And when you combine that with the fact that like the internet is, is more or less open season over there, it's not like China where it's heavily restricted and that kind of thing. So the the the, the kind of the, the the falsehood almost of this in Russia, you've only got kind of the, the state media and nothing else. It, it It is a falsehood, basically. Totally. I mean, the internet is <clears throat> almost completely open. The only thing they ban is certain porn sites for some reason. They've got a very... That's um, you able to look, Merlo. Yeah. <laughs> well, for, for a European country, they got a strangely sort of Middle Eastern attitude to porn. But uh, but but that's it. And also, rather bizarrely, LinkedIn has blocked her. Which that, yeah, that, oh, which I'm personally supportive of. I, yeah, I was, I was gonna, like, I'm not I'm not a big fan of LinkedIn. But of all the kind of social media channels to block, you you would think yeah, it's it's probably the one that are not going to get as much uh, anti-Russian sentiment on. But then big businesses. Yeah, the reason they, yeah, the reason they blocked it is because about five or six years ago they asked um, they asked social media firms to keep servers in Russia with Russian users' data, and uh, which is not uncommon. I mean, many countries do that, um, and they they everybody complied except LinkedIn for some reason. So they just blocked them. <laughs> that was it. Mad. Yeah. Now, oh yeah. It's me. Down. I, I don't like getting emails 20 times a day from LinkedIn. <laughs> Brian, I was watching, I watched earlier this year, I watched um, the Oliver Stone interviews with Putin. And then um, maybe closer to the summer then, I watched Channel 4 did a, a four-part series of uh, Putin as well. Now, the Channel 4 series very much painted him, as we've discussed, as the James Bond villain. And the the Oliver Stone um series of interviews kind of painted him as this misunderstood guy um what did you see either of that those those productions i saw oliver's i saw oliver's interviews with him uh almost all of them uh the channel four thing i watched a little bit of it and it just seemed to be pure muck as far as i was concerned uh it was the same talking heads that have been going on british television for the last 15 to 20 years saying the very same thing um Oliver, if I how did Oliver Stone get Oliver that Stone, access, Brian? Because he's Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, <laughs> you know it's he's quite a random, though, isn't it? Well, he's a superstar, Oliver, isn't he? Like he's one of the most famous filmmakers in the world, and he said he wanted to make a film about Putin. So Putin, obviously, Putin maybe is a fan of his movies. Who knows? Um, I mean, who's more famous than Oliver Stone in movie making? Maybe Spielberg and Sir. And Scorsese, is that it? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fair, Fair point. <laughs> he got four, four Oscars Oliver's got or something? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, well, but if anyway, you watched his Alexander the Great movie, you probably wouldn't think much of him, but sure look. Yeah. I'm Alexander and I'm great. I remember when Miley came in that movie. Remember that? Nick Lally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was I was watching it in a, in a cinema in Carlo, my hometown, and I'll never forget it. Some lad in the back row, let me show. Chase, there's Miley. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, yeah. 
Um, Oliver, by the way, Stone himself claims that that movie would have been better only for the studio hacked it to pieces. But anyway, I, 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 I don't know yeah, about don't. that. But you, you're on about you're on about the um, the, the interviews. The yeah. problem with the stuff that Irish people are consuming on BBC and consuming on uh, Channel Four and various British programs is that. They're made by people that have an axe to grind with the Russian system. This is the problem. The people that are appearing on them, like Bill Browder, Sergei, um, oh, I can't remember his name, I, he, the banker Pugachev, and, uh, who was definitely in that show, um, and uh, the other guy, Khodorkovsky, and these guys, they have all fallen foul of the authorities here. They, have, um, they were people that made a lot of money, we're talking about billionaires here. We're not talking about shopkeepers, you know. They're people that made a lot of money in the 90s when there was no regulation here, in the Boris Yeltsin time when it was the wild east. And they're people who are bitter because they've basically been pushed out of the gold mine, if you know what I mean. And they have an axe to grind. Now, now some of their concerns may be justified and some of their arguments may have a strong ring of truth to them. But the problem is they're not neutral actors here. They're not, you know, they're not, they're people that have something, they've lost something personally because of Putin's Russian state or whatever. They're not the kind of people to talk to. The kind of people that these documentaries should be talking to are ordinary Russians, really. Not Russians who've gone to the UK with their millions and millions and bought houses in Knightsbridge and Mayfair and whatever. It's really like, they're not the people they should be talking to, but that's the people they do talk to. That's the problem. And these people, of course, have huge PR operations as well that they fund themselves. And, you know, and that's why they get uh, the airtime, you know. That mu- the it, I just, I, even with the, the, the pu- or even the, the Oliver Stone interview, interviews, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, the direction of it was... It was kind of saying sticking. It, I, I thought it was sticking our sticking their fingers up to the Western media and saying, you know, this guy is not what you say he is, and he's a lovely man and stuff like that. And the Channel Four one ha, was like covering uh, topics such as journalists being murdered and um, it, obviously the interference in 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 the pres- U.S. presidential election and all. So it's just he's not it's, a lovely man. He's not, he's not a lovely man. He's a he's a hard nosed politician who yeah. believes he's acting in Russia's interest. He's not a lovely man. And if Oliver if Oliver made that kind of seem that it was the case, I mean that was obviously going a bit too far. Uh, well, you no, know, he, but pro- he's, he probably didn't. But I remember finished watching it, thinking, "Jesus, is Putin misunderstood here?" And then a couple of months later, the truth, probably, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle because in the Oliver Stone documentary, Putin was given the floor basically to himself, correct? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And he's obviously able to get his own point of view across. And obviously, the BBC thing or the Channel Four thing, as I said, is made by people with an axe to grind. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, basically. Right. If you know what I mean? What about um, the, you know? You know, it's you know, like. The, the poison, poison, and the the, the spies in England yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, that's is is like, what, could he be capable of doing something like that? Absolutely. Uh, let's put it like this. I mean, let's just go inside. Let's get inside a Russian brain here for a second, so to speak. The two people you're talking about, Alexander Litvinenko and Sergei Skripal, hmm. these are former Russian. Uh, intelligence officers, state security officers, okay? One, Litvinenko worked for the KGB and then the FSB, which was its successor. 
Um, and the second guy, Sergey Skripal, as far as I recall, worked for the SVR, which is the Foreign Intelligence uh, Service. So basically, one, if you like, worked for MI5, one worked for MI6, um, to use the British example, or one worked for the FBI, one worked for the CIA. Now, what they did was they defected to England. Now, in Skripal's case, he defected for money. Um, basically, the Brits paid him to betray his own country, Russia. And when it looked like he was going to get, sorry, he was swapped. When he was caught, he was swapped for somebody the Russians wanted, the British had, whatever, and sent to Britain. Now, fundamentally, he is, to use a phrase they use in Northern Ireland, a tout, essentially. He's a person that signed up to serve the Russian state, uh, touted information to an enemy country or an unfriendly country in the case of Britain, and then fed information to their security, MI6, whatever it is. Um, Litvinenko also was a KGB stroke FSB officer who defected to Britain and started to work for MI5. So from the Russian point of view, these two guys are traitors. And in the same way that the Americans believe Edward Snowden was a traitor, and because he's an NSA officer who leaked information. And they're trying to get them, basically. And I'm not trying to justify what they did. I'm not trying to justify... If indeed they did, there's actually no evidence to suggest that it, they definitely did. But I'm not trying to suggest that going to another country and poisoning people is justified. I'm just saying that's the way they think. They Russians have a code and a murder code, so to speak, that, you know, traders deserve what they get. I mean, we only have to look to home to see organizations that used to shoot traders. Um, what they perceived as traders in, in paramilitaries and stuff like that. And that's the Russian mentality of the state security services that if you betray the state you deserve what you get now i'm not saying that i support that point of view i'm not saying what happened was justified i'm just saying giving you an, giving you an insight into the thinking behind something like that and i can tell you that the vast majority of people in russia do not regret what happened in salisbury if indeed it did happen they think he, he got what he deserved basically and what do they think? What do they think when, when, as Danny was saying, the the sudden demise of certain journalists that are that the are so, dying? The sudden what, crime? The demise. <laughs> the valley Sorry. valley brat coming out at me again. Um, what like do, do the would they think along the same lines as the deaths of the spies? No. Totally different. That's a totally different kettle fish. The spies have to be separated from other stuff. The spies, as I just said were state officials who swore an oath of allegiance and betrayed the country, if you know what I mean. Mm. Journalists, totally different kettle of fish. This is a totally different kettle of fish. Now, I don't want to come across as an apologist here. I'm just trying to tell you the reality. I'm trying to deal in facts here, not in ideology, okay? Yeah, yeah. And the fact is that journalists, I think you're talking about Anna Politovskaya, like, I think it was in 2007 or 8 from Novaya Gazeta. Is that you're talking about? Yep. That murder was almost certainly carried out by Chechens, um, almost certainly ordered by Ramzan Kadyrov and Chechens. Um, but th there's nobody in Russia that really believes that was a state-sponsored hit. That, but the problem is, and I'm going to go further with this in a second, you might want to talk about what happened to Boris Nemtsov, a former government minister turned opposition politician. He was shot outside the Kremlin about five years ago. Again, Chechens were convicted of that. Now, what I'm trying to say is that the Western media narrative is basically Putin kills journalists, Putin kills dissident politicians. 
But in both these cases, Chechens have been, um, Chechens for people who don't know, Chechnya is a small majority Muslim republic in southern Russia on the border with Azerbaijan and, and countries like, and close to Iran, the Caspian Sea, um, that fought a war in the 1990s to separate from Russia uh, before two wars, before it was uh, quelled under the leadership of Ramzan Kadyrov, who has pledged allegiance to Moscow. It's, it's basically a feudal state, mm. the way it's run. Um, and it's an autonomous republic inside Russia, um, run as a personal fiefdom by Kadyrov. Um, just for background. Now, in both those cases, Politovskaya and Nemtsov, Chechens have been convicted or, or fingered for the murders. Now, the real nuance here is that if you read The Guardian or the Western thing, it's like Putin kills dissidents, Putin kills journalists. But in Russia, these are, you know, attributed to Chechens, who, by the way, are not bad people. I don't want to, I don't want to lamb down on Chechens here. They're, they're, they're attributed to the Chechen authorities, shall we say, okay? Because uh, I don't want to cast all Chechens in, in one light, okay, either. It's not fair. Um, so, so, so the point is that the, the point is that where the blame may lie with Putin for this is that he has allowed a system to be developed where they can act with this impunity, if you understand. So the, the, the narrative in Russia is not that Putin wanted Nemtsov killed. Nemtsov being killed was extremely embarrassing for Putin. It happened outside the gates of the Kremlin, basically, the walls of the Kremlin. And it also crossed the red line that political assassinations were supposed to be a thing of the past in Russia. They weren't supposed to happen anymore. Um, but the problem is that the Chechen authorities received no sanction for the murder of Nemtsov. The Chechen authorities received no sanction for the murder of Anna Politovskaya. That's the reality. The last political murder of a journalist in Russia was in 2009. And it was, uh, it was, um, I, it was a journalist from Novaya Gazeta. One second, I just need to check this to get my facts right. Um, who was killed in Moscow coming out of a court case, I remember. That's in 2009. That's 11 years ago. Um, the last political, um, yeah, it was Anastasia Bagulova, a freelance journalist. She was killed in 2009 in January working for Novaya Gazeta. She was killed with a lawyer called Stanislav Markolov um, in January, the middle of January in 2019 in a daylight assassination. The point is that that was the last politically uh, motivated murder of a journalist in Russia 11 years ago. Now, that's an awful thing to happen. But if I, what I just, the information I've just given you contrasts with the idea that there's journalists been shot every day of the week here, uh, which is simply not true. Um, now, of course, there are journalists murdered sometimes, but it's not necessarily because of politics or because it's been ordered by the authorities. It can usually be attributed to local affairs like investigating mafias or something or, or, or pissing off the wrong guy. Mm. So that's just to give you an overview of it. Um, but certainly the Kremlin deserves blame for creating a situation where the authorities of one republic, Chechnya, seem to be able to operate with impunity. Now, there's another nuance to that, of course, that because there was two wars in the 90s, that they may be wary of stoking the Chechen tinderbox again, you know? But that's not to forgive it either. I'm just trying to give you a broad nuance to a question that's often very simplified in the West, basically. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think and that's, and that's the, the kind of benefit of talking to, to you at the moment, Brian, is that, you know, it, it gives that kind of 
as I said, that fact-based kind of driven um, way of putting it as opposed to kind of what we're getting. And one of the things, it's, again, I'm kind of unconscious that some people listening to this might have already dismissed it as a kind of a pro-Russian episode, but it's we're not doing that. We're, we're trying to understand and trying to get a better idea of it because we've heard a lot about America over the last couple of weeks, but... You know, and I've made it clear, by the way, that I made it clear that I'm not a Putin supporter. Yeah, I made yeah. it clear that he, the Kremlin, the Kremlin, deserves censure for letting people act with impunity. This is not a pro-Russian podcast. What I'm trying to do yeah. now is give you facts, and listeners can make up their own opinion on it. Exactly. I don't care if yeah. listeners come away thinking Russia is great or Russia is bad. I'm just trying to give you the facts that you wouldn't usually get, for example, on RTE or News Talk when someone's on for two minutes saying Putin's bad, usually with a yeah. British accent, almost always with a British accent, uh, you know, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and I think, and, and part of that as well is, like, and, and I'm just laughing, because yesterday, I think it was, you uh, you, you retweeted um, kind of segment from a job advertisement for, I think it was the New York Times, and they're looking for a new Russian mm-hmm. correspondent. And I think that absolutely kind of, it just sums up kind of the Western media approach to to Russia in general. Can, can you remember off the top of your head some, some of that? Because when I read at the time, I was like, hang on a second. Is this is this legitimate? Like, is this actually what they put out in a job advertisement? Yeah, this is what they wrote for the benefit of listeners. Um, they said that Vladimir Putin's Russia remains one of the biggest stories in the world. It sends out hit squads armed with nerve agents against its enemies. Most recently, the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, who, by the way, is not the opposition leader, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, It has its cyber agents sow chaos and disharmony in the West to tarnish its democratic systems while promoting its fall version of democracy. It has deployed private military contractors around the globe to secretly spread its influence at home is hospitals are filling up fast with COVID patients, which obviously is exceptional in the world right now, as its president hides out in his villa, which is not true because he's been traveling around the country. If that sounds like a place you want to cover, then we have good news. We will have an opening for a new correspondent as Andy Higgins, who I knew before as Andrew, takes over as our next European bureau chief uh, early next year. Uh, we are eager to hear from those interested in taking on one of the legendary, most legendary postings at the Times, a seat occupied by the likes of Bill Keller, Serge Shesman, Hedrick Smith, uh, Clifford Levi and Ellen Barry. It doesn't mention by Walter Durante. Now, I urge anybody listening to go on Google right now and Google uh, Walter Durante, who basically covered up a famine in the 1930s in Ukraine and Kazakhstan because he didn't want to upset Stalin. Uh, Go and Google Walter Durante, okay? D-U-R-A-N-T-Y. I really urge you to, okay? The most legendary Moscow correspondent of the New York Times of them all. Um, So basically it says, we are looking for someone who will embrace the prospect of traversing 11 time zones to track a populace that is growing increasingly frustrated with an economy dragged down by corruption, cronyism, and excessive reliance on natural resources. Uh, The posting offers the chance to chronicle the continuing reign of one of the world's most charismatic leaders, Vladimir V. Putin, uh, President Vladimir V. Putin. Now, look, some people on Twitter have said it sounds more like a posting for his CIA uh, job (laughs) (laughs) in Moscow. But one individual, Josh, who is a Korean-American journalist, I think, works Mm. for Fair Media Watch, made a very good point that 
It's interesting that the New York Times openly admits that it has a predetermined propaganda narrative they want to push about Russia before their new correspondent even gets there. The job will basically be writing anti-Russia sensationalism that the editors want instead of real reporting. I don't want to over-egg this, but another gentleman called Hans uh, Manka, who seems to be American despite the German-sounding name, says the New York Times is recruiting a Russia correspondent. The job requirements are that you must hate Putin and believe all the conspiracy theories about Russia. I was sure it was a hoax, but sadly it's not. Now, the reason I went on and on so much there is that why this is significant, and I'm sure some journalists listen to your podcast, and I know many of your guests are journalists, mm. um, is because they're basically telling you that if you want this job, you have to believe all this, and you have to report from this standpoint. They're not saying, hey, Danny, hey, Graham, do you want to go to Russia and report what you see? They're not saying that. They're saying, you're going to go over, and this is what you got to do, basically. There's nothing about, for example... It's a PR job, not a journalist job. Yes, yes. Your job is basically to go over and do propaganda. And, like, I mean, can I just give you a counterpoint here for a second? Like, Mm. and by the way, I'm not saying Russia's great again either. Like, I'm just saying, for example, that, you know, you could put it like, for example, you could say that you might wish to look at the remarkable improvements in Russian infrastructure over the last 20 years. I mean, anyone who's been to Russia would know that the infrastructure here has improved you know, out of, contr- out of beyond measure. Um, yeah. You could say that um, you might want to come and look at local democracy in Russia, which does exist, by the way. Uh, you might want to come and look at, you know, opposition figures that, other than Navalny, for example, the communists or the nationalists, or who are far more popular than Navalny, may I say, by the way. But of course, they're anti-Western, so they don't get covered in the Western media. You might say, you know, what about Russia's role as a peacekeeper, in Armenia and Azerbaijan, for example. Is that not interesting, for example? Is it not interesting maybe to discuss Russia's relations with China and Asia, for example? You know, but they don't want that. They want people to come in from that particular worldview. It's like saying, mm-hmm. do you want to be the Dublin correspondent? Go over, it's a country famous for potatoes and shillelaghs and Guinness <laughs> and people being drunk in the streets. You know where I'm coming from. It's, it's completely stereotypical. That's right. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like they're... That's, that was uh, bonkers. That's absolutely bonkers. That they're essentially... They something like that. They're essentially trying to basically take the Rocky Four plotline and apply it to journalism, it sounds like. <laughs> and even Drago wasn't even Russian. He's Swedish. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, Who lives in Marbella, by the way. You bit of useless information. Uh, there you go. Only know because a Russian friend of mine met him in Marbella. That's the reason I know. Anyway, so yeah, so 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 basically, yeah, that's what it is. You're totally right. It's it's basically Marvel comics, you know, good mm. guys and bad guys. Captain America is going to come to save the day. I won't have a bad word said about Captain America on this show. Just want to put that out there. I I, I have a soft spot for Cap. So me me and me comic book nerds will, will stand okay. over that one. Um. But yeah, no, I, you're, I, you're right. Though. I've never met him, so I can't possibly comment. Yeah, uh, yeah neither have I, but he's a gent, and I won't have that. <laughs> I'll go, I'll go with the propaganda model when it comes to Captain America. Um, okay. But it is, it's, it's, it's interesting though the whole thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, and uh, w- one of the things there as well that that they don't ask for, and it's something that kind of surprised me because again, when you look at media over here and they talk about Putin, particularly, they talk about kind of like you know the the, the stronghold that he has and that. 
you know, it's it's a it's a population that's starting to turn against them because as younger people come through, um, you know, they look for kind of that more. That's actually not true. But, He's actually yeah. more popular with the younger people. Exactly. There's an, people. <laughs> there's an entire generation of people who only know Russia under Vladimir Putin, who are now at that voting age. And his popularity among them is insane. Like, it's 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 the type of figures yeah. that any politician would look for. And very interestingly, they are the people that don't watch television. They're the people that get their news off the internet. And, mm. are, and as you said earlier, uh, Danny, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter, they're, they're reading all the Western information. Most of them speak English, so they can actually yeah. read Western media if they want to, you know? Um, okay, they're not fluent, but they have an understanding of it. Um, you know, so like... And the funny thing is that a lot of the older people here are still nostalgic about the Soviet Union and they vote for the communists, <laughs> you know, which is true, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right. And that's the interesting thing about it is that now, obviously, the other thing, though, is that Putin is 67, I think, at the moment or heading yeah. for 68. He's not going to be forever either. And a, tra- a transition has to happen at some stage. And that's going to be very interesting when that is- comes about. Yeah, and, and I think there was a story recently that, that claimed Putin was in, in ill health and they were preparing for a handover in the new year, but I think that's being dismissed as absolute that, bullshit. See, this is another example of deplorable media coverage of Russia. And I feel so sorry for Irish people because our newspapers can't afford to have bureaus in Moscow, the Times even, the Independent. Mm. Just, the money's just not there anymore. We used to have some great Russia correspondents in Ireland, Seamus Martin, Conor O'Cleary. Connor and Seamus would have been much like myself. They would have come over with a curiosity and wanted to kind of understand the place, you know. I actually get on very well with Seamus on the personal level. Um, mm. You know, and, and the point is like that, you know, that they, they would have wanted to understand the place. The problem, because the Irish Times, as it was constituted in the 90s and the early 2000s, was willing to take a neutral point of view. Um, the British media is not willing to do that, unfortunately. And the problem is that our people are interpreting Russia through British through a British lens, not through an Irish lens. They're interpreting it through the Guardian, the Times, the, the Sunday Times, whatever, which is a British newspaper, um, despite the fact that it might pretend to have something to do with Ireland. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, well, the, the website address is .co.uk, just in case anybody hadn't noticed. Um, anyway, <laughs> the point is, though, that, you know, um, although they did great work on John Delaney and the FBI, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Major that's fr- that's very um, true. Very true. Yeah, and then Mark Tide yeah, is a great Delaney. Who seems like he's more corrupt than Putin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to get sued. So I'm not saying anything. <laughs> 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 he's a he's a, a colourful character, as the fella says. You know. Um, yeah. Anyway, but uh, no, but but look. And just to say, Mark Tai is a great reporter, and that was great stuff, and I followed him with great interest. But the point is that people are seeing it through that prism, unfortunately. And I want to just talk about that article about stepping down in the new year. Mm. That is an example of the low standards that permeate on this beat, because the source of that story was a conspiracy theorist, Valery Solovyov, who is a... Solovey, sorry, Solovey, there's another Solovyov. Valery Solovey is a conspiracy theorist who every six months or so make some prediction about Putin that turns out to be wrong. Uh, he is basically like Alex Jones, Infowars in Russia. That is <laughs> no. the truth. It is Alex Jones, right? And the problem is that no newspaper from Britain or Germany or Ireland 
would ever cite Alex Jones as a legitimate source in an article about America, correct? Like, yeah. yeah. Because, because people, because of the English language, we all know about America. You can watch CNN, you can watch Fox. So we know Alex Jones is a looper and it's all a whatever, you know. Um, but you don't know that Valer, Valery Solovey is a looper. And I'm going to say that because he can sue me if he wants because it's true. They're not going to say that <laughs> Valery Solovey is a looper because you don't know who he is. You don't know where I'm coming from. Yeah, so yeah. they can get away. So what they've basically done is by, by basing the article, it was the Daily Mail or the Sun, one or the other, on Valery Solovey's testimony is essentially the same as saying Joe Biden, it's like if the Irish Times, um, I forget who the Washington correspondent is at the moment, it's like if they, if they run a story tomorrow saying that Joe Biden is not going to take the presidency in, in January because he's got some health problem, whatever, Parkinson's or something, according to our source, Alex Jones, <laughs> of, 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 you know, of the informative InfoWars website. <laughs> Yeah. So for someone like me, who's in Russia and understands the language and can read the media here, that's how it looks to me. You know, mm. it looks to me like, you know, Alex Jones, <laughs> you know, it's, that's how it's, it looks like. It's it's mad. And, I, and that's it. And I think like, look, I, I don't get me wrong. I know kind of Putin has played the game very well in terms of, you know, making the most of the the time frames that he can be in power and he's he's done a bit of jiggery pokery here and there to ensure that he keeps a fair and grip of that. So when you mentioned succession there, mm-hmm. like is I mean is Medvedev the, the the man in waiting or does he fall out of favour? Is there somebody who potentially is is going to step up in the next decade or are we looking at a long term future under Putin with and he hasn't really shown any signs of wanting a successor to be lined up? Medvedev is out of the picture as far as presidential succession goes, I would say, because he's been removed from the post of prime minister. Mm. Plus, he had a shot at it before for four years, uh, 2008 to 2012. And let's say that the report card was, uh, the jury is still out, we'll say. Like, he, he made, uh, the Russians would say, he, he was popular, by the way, to a yeah. degree, especially popular with liberal people. He was quite liberal, far more liberal than Putin. But he certainly made some foreign policy moves, like particularly in Libya, that were seen as um, naive by the establishment in Moscow. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people forget that the reason Gaddafi is dead is basically because of Medvedev. Medvedev mm. allowed the Americans to impose the fly zone over, over Libya. Um, yeah. Putin wouldn't have done that. Um, look, anyway, the, the point is that Putin is not forever, like all of us. And uh, he's been there for 16 of the last 20 years in the Kremlin, and he spent four years as prime minister, which is a different role here in between. Um, now, what he's done is essentially, he's created, uh, if any of your listeners know anything about France, you will know the expression Gaulism in France, yeah? Mm-hmm. Which is related to Charles de Gaulle, obviously. Putin, in my opinion, and the opinion of many people far more intelligent than myself, sees himself as a sort of, Russian version of Charles de Gaulle, uh, a sort of father of the nation, or a sort of Russian version of Roosevelt, who did four terms also in America, mm. as you know, um, during the war time. So basically, in the same way that Roosevelt took over America after the Great Depression, when it was on its lowest ebb ever, and turned it into a superpower, 
Um, and the way Charles de Gaulle took a France that had been occupied and broken by the Nazis and turned it into a rich and modern and strong country again. Putin sees himself as that. He sees himself as sort of living historical figure on a sort of God-driven mission to like rescue Russia from its knees where it was when he took over 20 years ago. I mean, if you know any Russian people, they will tell you that when he took over, there were serious questions about the viability of the state. Mm. Um, a, lot, a lot of people thought the state might actually collapse and fragment into various republics and everything. And Putin sees himself as the person who reversed that course of direction under Yeltsin and Gorbachev. Um, now, bear in mind, again, this is not my opinion. I'm telling you what he thinks and what people here think. So for Putin, the succession is very important to organize because he wants to ensure that the system he is, well, he didn't really build the system. Yeltsin built the system. The system that he has tweaked from Yeltsin continues in perpetuity. And he also wants to make sure that this, the state remains stable, that there's obviously a personal concern as well. He doesn't want to have some ramifications in the future for stuff he did while he was in office. And with that in mind, they passed legislation a couple of weeks ago that um, would mean he's immune from prosecution for the rest of his life. Uh, and so is Medvedev, by the way. And that mm. was, by the way, the catalyst for the story you were talking about, that he was going to quit in January, because the conspiracy theorist... Um, took two and two and made 127, basically. He, they passed legislation to say that presidents of the future will be immune from prosecution. And then the guy basically uh, extrapolated that into a mad conspiracy theory that Putin's dying and has to sort of like get out of office as quick as possible. But all those legislative moves do indicate that they are the decisions of somebody who's got his eye on a future where he won't be around in the Kremlin. Because why would if he if he intended to govern for life, why would he pass legislation like that? Uh, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, um, even so passing legislation like that is that not a bit smelly, Brian? Other countries have similar rules. I mean, mm. obviously, maybe not to that extent, but um, off the top of my head, I can't tell you. But I do know there are a number of countries where past presidents are immune from prosecution for what they did while they were in office. I think France is one, actually. I think you can't prosecute a French president for what they did while they were in office. Did yeah, Chirac not get prosecuted for corruption? Yeah, but Chirac was done for something he did in the 80s in Paris before he was president, when he was mayor wow. of Paris. Yeah, I'm almost yeah. certain that any listeners can correct me on that, but I'm almost certain the French president can't be prosecuted for what they did while they were in office. Mm. Almost certain about that. Um, so, look. And I agree with you, by the way, Graham, and I don't want to dismiss your point. There is something a bit smelly about that to a degree, because obviously by passing legislation like that, obviously he feels there might be a skeleton or two in the closet that could be used against him, obviously. Yeah. But so your your point is totally valid, Graham. I don't want to seem like I was dismissing it because it's fine. But 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 the point is, though, that somebody who is planning to rule for life would not be passing legislation like that, is what I mean. Now, to answer your question, Danny and Graham, about who might come after him? Nobody knows. There's an, and the problem is that in Ireland, because you keep hearing about Navalny all the time as this opposition leader, which he's not, um, people don't realize that the real situation is far more nuanced, that the real opposition, so to speak, is there are some extreme nationalists, for example, bordering on fascists in the opposition. Mm -hmm. There's communists who would like to go back to the Soviet era. 
there are genuine liberals uh, like Ilya Yashin and people around the Yabloko party, which means apple in Russian. Um, there are outright fascists like Rodina, who recently won control of the city of Tambov uh, in, a, in a local election, which I find quite scary, to be honest with you. Um, and there are um, centrists then of the Putin. See, this is another thing as well. In the West, people think Putin's some crazy fascistic nationalist. In Russia, he's a centrist. <laughs> Mm. You know, he's he's basically Leo, Leo Varadkar or Michal Martin, you know, in, in their sense. So, 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 so what, well, Leo Varadkar is a bit right wing. We'll, we'll say he's more sort of uh, end Kenny, a kind of yeah. fellow in the center, <laughs> that kind of way. Yeah. You know, I'm, I just can't believe I just compared Putin to end Kenny. <laughs> yeah. I'd say Ender's holiday photos are just as interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there's a legendary one of them holding an ice cream that I can't yeah. get out of my head sometimes. Yeah, 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 seeing that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very concerned about the fascists, by the way, when I was um, over there, Brian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there, there's far more chance, uh, Graham, of of Russia post-Putin having a ultra-nationalist leader than having a liberal leader. There's far more chance of that. And with Putin trying to stop the, Oh, yeah, Putin doesn't want that either. But Putin doesn't want a liberal either. Putin wants someone like himself, someone in the middle. Um, so the reason that Putin is pushing all these institutions like the church, the church has become very powerful in the last 20 years under Putin, which is ironic that at a time in Ireland when the church was essentially falling apart, it was getting stronger in Russia after being effectively banned for 70 years under communism. Um, so Putin has been promoting institutions like the church and the military, you know, as the foundation rocks of Russia. Um, and the idea of that, I suppose, in some ways is, is to discourage extremists, you know. Now, some people might think the church are extremists, to be fair, but, 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 but you know what I mean, that would be the way he would see it. Um, so about your question about the succession, Graham, I'm not really, at this point, anything I would tell you is entirely speculation and would be completely unfounded and based on waffle, to be honest with you. So I'm not going to predict anything, but I would say that Putin himself was about 45, if I'm right, or 46 when he was tapped by Boris Yeltsin. He actually more like 48 when he was tapped by Boris Yeltsin to take over. So Medvedev is heading on 60, um, and a lot of those. Sergei Lavrov, for example, is already over 70, the foreign minister mm -hmm. you probably know. Yeah. And so it's very unlikely that, given that Putin himself is 68 or heading for 68, he is 68 actually, it would be a bit stupid for him to pick somebody almost the same age to take over. I mean, he might as well just stay there himself in that yeah. case, you know? Um, so I would say if anybody's going to be anointed, it's probably someone in their 40s presently who we don't really know much about. Names you hear mentioned sometimes are Dmitry Petrushev, who's a, the Minister for Agriculture and is about 40 or 41. There's a guy called Anton Duman, who is the governor of Tula and used to be one of Putin's bodyguards, a security, you know, something like a secret service. Mm. Um, he's mooted. But they're the kind of names that would be more realistic than Medvedev, to be honest, because Medvedev is um, no spring chicken and his... Um, Propensity for deep purple makes people suspicious of him as well for a very good reason. <laughs> uh, Brian, Brian, I'm conscious that we've we've taken up a lot of your day already. Um, but, but before we let you go, just I suppose uh, Russia and COVID nineteen. What's the situation like over there at the moment? Yeah, did he manage it well? 
Bad Danny. Bad Graham. Um, if anyone listens to the stand with Eamon Dunphy, I was talking to Eamon a couple of weeks ago and I made a point that, mm. <sighs> look, there's a debate going on at home in Ireland right now about whether we should open up or stay in phase five, is it lockdown or level five lockdown? Mm. Look, I personally know of a suicide in Carlo this week, someone I knew. Um, and there's no doubt that there's a mental health epidemic in Ireland at the moment because of the lockdown as well as a COVID epidemic. Is that fair to say? Um, a lot of people are upset and isolated. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like it, it's definitely taking its toll on people, but I suppose kind of, I, I don't know, I, I, I think mental health in Ireland has been something that's been a problem for a number of years now. And while kind of COVID restrictions may have exasperated problem or they played a part in, in, in making it worse or whatever, I think there's there's a, a large portion of people in Ireland who are almost trying to weaponize mental health and suicide against, okay. as, as almost as, as a counterweight as to why we shouldn't lock down and why we shouldn't do this and why we shouldn't do that. And it's it's become a little bit of a dirt war in right. a way. Okay, I don't want to get involved in that thing because that yeah, wasn't my yeah. intention at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't yeah. my intention. I'm just trying to explain that. Look, there's obviously a psychological effect though of flinging hundreds of thousands of people onto the dole or social welfare. Absolutely. I mean, there's no yeah, doubt about absolutely. that. I mean, whether and whether that was caused by COVID or caused by an economic recession, it would still be the same thing. So, by the way, I'm yeah. to be very clear: COVID is a desperately serious illness. I'm fully aware of the dangers of it. I'm fully aware of what it can do. And I'm I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss it in any way. I don't want to come across like one of these. Irish Freedom Party people or something, you know, I, I don't want to, or, or, or what's her name, but I, my former colleague, Gemma. Um, yeah, so I, I don't yeah. want to come across like that. So, but I'm just trying to make the point that Russia is not like Ireland in the sense that anybody who knows any Russians will tell you that the country's economy collapsed in the 1990s to the extent where people were effectively starving, you know, in the 1990s. Uh, the, after the Soviet Union. I mean, 20 years ago, $100 a month was considered a, a wage, even in Moscow. I mean, that's how bad it was. Um, so the Russians are acutely aware of what can happen when your economy ceases to function and collapses. And because of that, what happened here was that there was a, a very serious lockdown in the spring, far more serious than in Ireland. Um, in Moscow, for example, you weren't allowed to go outside your house. Uh, or flat, and um, more than a hundred meters, unless you yes. had a valid reason. You had to get it. You had to apply. You had to apply for an online pass to go. Like you had to prove that you were going to work or going to whatever, and you were restricted that you could only shop at your nearest supermarket, and you could only go or shop. So there's no point in saying, "I don't want to shop in Lidl. I want to go to Dunn's." If Lidl is closer to you, that's where you're going. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was how it was or spar for that matter. Um, so that's how it was. Uh, and um, you couldn't go more than 100 meters from your door. And even then it was only to walk the dog. Uh, and people were actually renting dogs on social media uh, so people could go for a walk. Jesus. Yeah. Really, this went on. So they were really strict, really strict about it. They were like, where I live down south, it wasn't quite as strict as that, but... Um, but they, they, they had like, it was pretty strict, far stricter than Ireland, definitely. It was a mask regime, long before there was a mask regime in Ireland. Mm. And they did that until the start of June, basically. 
Um, so they went really full on for three months, two and a half months. And then the second wave came, as you have in Ireland right now, and they decided not to lock down at all. And they decided instead to... So in Moscow right now, the pubs are open until 11 o'clock. Uh, the restaurants are open and uh, shops are open and whatever have you, like normal. Um, there are some restrictions. Um, for example, only football games can only have a third capacity, for example. Um, you know, which is, might sound crazy to Irish people. Like, I was in a pub last night, like, I mean, you know, like, they're open here. Um, so the point is that they decided not to go for another lockdown because they didn't want to risk an economic collapse. And also because, unlike Ireland, I suppose, they invested a lot in healthcare capacity over the last six or seven months. I mean, one particular infections hospital in Moscow called Kominarka had 400 and something beds, and now it has over 2,000, for example. They've requisitioned an ice rink in Moscow, a, a hockey arena as a temporary mm -hmm. hospital, something like what the Brits were trying to do with the Nightingale Hospital, if you remember that, in, the, yeah. in yeah. Earl's Court. Um, they have, so they've done their best with their with the resources they have to increase capacity, and they've effectively taken the point of view that, oh, by the way, over 65s are not allowed outside here, but it's it's not enforced, to be honest with you. It, it, they're told to stay at home, but they're not exactly going around picking them up off the streets or anything. Yeah. Um, so basically, that's what they've done, and look, they've decided that, I think they've taken the point of view that eventually everybody's going to get this disease or be touched by this disease at some point because it's so rampant anyway. And mm. they've probably taken the point of view that it's not as dangerous. It's not as dangerous as we thought it was in spring. I think everybody would agree on that. I mean, when in March, we were terrified that it was basically going to kill everybody, as you remember. And mm. um, the scenes from Italy, there were, I remember reports of, in Italy of people supposedly dropping dead on the street. Remember that? Mm. Um, in yeah, the beginning. Was, so yeah, look, it's, it is a very serious... Oh, sorry, go on, go on. I was just going to say there was stories then of, of hospitals having to make decisions on uh, taking elderly people off ventilators to give them to young people and all the you, you, there was yeah. horror stories coming out of the place, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So look, again, I'm not justifying what they did. I'm not saying what they're doing is right. I'm just saying that this is the approach they've taken. They've decided that you can't control it, basically, is what they've decided, um, especially in a country as big as Russia. Mm. And the biggest country in the world. But what they have done is they've at least put their money where their mouth is to an extent and invested in hospitals. Now, that is not uniform nationwide. There are serious issues in poorer regions. I mean, like there's places like um, Ivano, Ivanovo, uh, some place around the Ural Mountains where the hospitals are already full, uh, where some of the hospital conditions are very, very poor, certainly below a level that we would accept in Ireland. Um, and there is, um, there's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt that a lot of people would prefer a stronger lockdown here. But this is the policy they've gone for. Um, they basically, basically what they've done is they've taken the view that lockdowns don't work. That's the view they've taken. Okay. And I guess the fact that the figures in Ireland are continuing to rise might even support that to a certain degree, if you know what I mean, that a mm. full-on lockdown is not going to be a not that it doesn't work, but it's not going to be a complete solution, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of people are, are saying th this kind of strict lockdown hasn't worked as well as the initial lockdown in spring, which seemed to be, it, it, it well, I mean, it got us down into single-figure transmission at one point, and, and now mm -hmm. 
yeah, we're not seeing the results. The one in spring was far more stricter, though. You had building sites show, you had schools show. Well, that's, that's you, true. You that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very, very like, true. None of that's ha- happening at the moment in Ireland. It's it's a very, like, pubs are closed, restaurants are closed, concerts, entertainment stuff is yeah. all closed. But, I mean, construction sites are still going ahead. Uh, yeah. Schools are still going ahead. So, I mean, it's not as strict as it was in March. Look, I don't. I think it's a bit darker. I think I it's a bit envy. doom and gloom because we're going into a winter. You know that way. Yeah, obviously it's normal psychological effect. I don't want to bring up yeah. the mental health angle, but obviously, mm. like dark evenings. Obviously, people are probably less compliant now because they're less afraid than they were in spring, for example. Yeah. Um, and you might see more or less compliance look, I mean, with the news of a vaccine as well, Brian. You know, people might just relax and say, "Well, look." The vaccine seems to be on the yeah. way, and that's that's the bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Where as prior I to that vaccine you. news, we didn't have light at the end of the tunnel. I agree with you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pee all over the light at the end of the tunnel for a second, unfortunately, because <laughs> oh, I got a bit of bad no. news about the vaccine. <laughs> I do, and and your listeners need to bear this in mind. Russia, as you probably know, was the first country to register a potential vaccine back in August. It's called Sputnik Five, Sputnik Ped, and Look, I don't care if the Russian vaccine is better or the American vaccine is better or the Chinese vaccine is better. Like everybody listening, I just hope to God they all work and yeah. they're just gone and they're all equal. Brilliant. OK, I don't care. But the point is that we covered the story in my job and we were obviously delighted in August. And let's be honest, it was a propaganda element, PR element to it as well. The Russians didn't necessarily have to. Um, you know, announced it in such a blaze of glory. They could have been more subtle about it, obviously. But look, they did what they did, and that's that. And I suppose you can understand in a way because some people like to dismiss them as backward and stuff. They wanted to show, look, we still have good scientists or whatever, you know, that kind of way. You can understand that. But look, the point is that they did what they did for whatever reason. Uh, but what's happening now is that they actually have a vaccine. They've done a trial of more than 20,000 people already. Uh, actually, it's almost 40 now, which is considered to be. The vaccine has gone to Geneva for certification from the WHO with the results of the trial. If it's certified, let's hope it is, uh, it'll be great. But the problem is now what they realise is that they they probably have a vaccine. We can't say for sure until the WHO give approval. But it's very likely that they've found the vaccine. But it's producing it is the problem. They don't yeah. have the capacity to produce 140 million doses for everybody in the country. And that's exactly the same problem the American vaccines will run into. I mean, look in Ireland, for example. Let's say that Pfizer decided to produce it under license, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, the Pfizer factory in Cork is supposed to service the whole European Union, which is like, you know, 500 million people. Uh, there's no way that factory in Cork has the capacity to make 500 million doses. And the same will apply. And, you know, some people say like, oh, we could just requisition existing factories. But like, what about the drugs these factories are making already? Are we going to stop making like cancer drugs and even paracetamol and, you know, stuff like that? So it's not so simple. And what the Russians have found is that now they have a potential vaccine. There's no way they're going to get it out nationwide, maybe even until the end of next year. And maybe not even until the year after. And that's going to be the same problem all over the world. And that's something we have to realize, I think. I, can, I know in Ireland there's shortages of the flu vaccine this winter, yes? Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah. I got mine, though. So there you go. Well, but, fair play to you. Like, I mean, bit, I, bit I, of... I don't want to rain on anybody's Well, you have. You've ruined me day, Brian. You've ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
well, I don't know. Maybe we can, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, I just trying to be a realist here. That's all. And I'm just telling you what yeah, people yeah. are saying here. That's all that, you know, you asked me well, a question. Me, 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 Michael Martin, Michael Martin did an interview yesterday and he was saying that once there's approval, um, he's been told that he there could be there could be a rollout in Ireland by the middle of December for frontline workers and the elderly. Yeah, but a rollout to what level? Like how many of them? I mean, a rollout could mean five hundred or a thousand, or it could mean a million. Like the reality is, there's five million people in the Irish Republic, and I suppose at least. Like, if you don't give it to kids, for example, at least three and a half million are going to be looking for it, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're on the list for the immediate order of 1.5 million. Yeah, but where's who's going to produce that 1.5 million? That's my point. And don't forget, every other country is going to be looking for it as well. well your man from Pfizer, the CEO, said that they'd be able to produce a ridiculous amount um, up until the early point of next year. And then his target was, like... I think it was a billion by the end of next year. Well, I hope he's right and I hope I'm wrong. But to me, it sounds a little bit fantastical, given it has to be frozen to a certain temperature, minus 70 or something, isn't it? Minus 70, yeah. And obviously there's logistical challenges. Where are they going to get all the freezers from? Where are they going to get the, you know, you can't just stick it in a freezer bag from Aldi. I was, was going to say, it's, it's, it's Black Friday next week. They'll be able to pick up a few freezers on Amazon, hopefully, to get them through, you know? <laughs> Can we not just go down to the, yeah. the factory down in Cork and all line up so we don't have to consider all that? Careful, they don't give you the blue one instead. <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's a great That's way to end it. Yeah, I love that. Um, Brian, thanks so much because we, we've taken up way more of your time. Than, thanks, than, Brian. Um, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, it was fascinating and, and, and brilliant. Really, really enjoyed it. If, if people want to, to hear more from you, Brian, I know you're, you're on Eamon's podcast, The Stand, uh, regularly enough. Um, but where, where else can can they get you? The, on, on Twitter and the like? Twitter, 27KHV. And don't even ask me where I got that Twitter name from. It was just <laughs> stupid. I was, I was in a city in Habarisk in the far east of Russia, which is over near China. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I had my original Twitter name was... Brian A. McDonald, uh, and it was so long. Do you remember when Twitter was only 144 characters? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was so long that anybody, if anybody wanted to reply to me, half their reply was my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I said I, I better shorten it to something like four or five characters. And I couldn't, I tried probably a hundred different options. I tried BMCD1, BMCD35, and BMCD IRE, and all kinds of things. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I was in Habarisk, and the airport code in Habarisk is KHV, and the car registration plates are 27. <laughs> That's the only reason. That's how I did it. And it's not like, it's not a sign from the Illuminati or anything. I looked out the window and I saw the car reg plate was 27. <laughs> well, that's well, in, inspiration hits us in many forms, Brian, you know? It does, it does. And listen, that was really a pleasure. And I'm sorry for making you do it so early in the morning in Ireland. Thank you so much, Brian McDonald, for your time, man. Really appreciate that. Mero, I, I, I found that, like, I just, I'm always fascinated when we talk to people about kind of almost like one side of media versus another side of media because somewhere in the middle lies the truth but nobody tends to go to the middle ground do they no and it's it's 
like you said, it's fascinating, but at the same time, you're kind of going, well, I read this, and now you're telling me this, and then I read that, and like, Brian lives in Russia. Brian sees Russia every day, do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, so, he's he's not saying Putin is great, he's not saying... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, like as he said himself, he's he's not trying to convince us Russia is brilliant. He's not trying to convince us Putin is good, bad, or, or anything else. He's trying to give yeah. us the this, this this is the fact, and this is the kind of what the 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 kind of Russian brain works like, as he said, um, and yeah. when he was talking about certain parts of it, like, and it, it is it's fascinating. And I think like like you said on so many podcasts before, when we talked about kind of countries that we don't understand fully living here. Best thing you can do, lads, just read more sources. Like, don't just stick mm-hmm. to RTE, don't just stick to BBC or the Guardian or the Daily Mail or the Sun or whoever. Nobody buys the Sun, and if you do buy the Sun, stop that. It's a filthy habit. But y- you know what I mean. You yeah, know what I mean. absolutely. It's it's interesting, and I would, if anyone hasn't watched the Oliver Stone interviews with Putin, they're a good watch. But I also did enjoy the Channel Four documentary as well. Um, and. Yeah. Yeah. But it, after watching both of them, you're still kind of none the wiser. Is Putin a good guy? Yeah, and that's he probably prefers it that way, Graham. He probably yeah, he probably does. Yeah, I do yeah. find it shady that he's given himself immunity um, from prosecution, and I do find it shady that he becomes prime minister, and then when that term's over, he becomes president, and then when that term's over, he becomes prime minister. I do find all that a bit shady, but yeah, I I think it's. <sighs> I can't actually remember what it is. There was, I think there was. Is it not a bit? A, 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 what's that term? Authoritarian? Is that what it I think, is? I think, yeah, but I, th- I think, I think Putin had almost welcomed the term. And I think Brian actually touched on it. Called him a soft authoritarian. In yeah. the sense, like he, he definitely is. Like, and he definitely is that kind of classic strongman leader. He's not a, a, a sensitive. He wouldn't be in the same bracket as a Justin Trudeau, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he does rule with with an element of power about him as opposed to diplomacy. And that's not to say he's not diplomatic. I'm sure he is quite skilled in kind of negotiating various things and being able to play that side of it if he wants to. But his, his, his strong point is that strong, almost military-like leadership, in, in my opinion, Absolutely. anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was a good chat, anyway. Um, yeah. And I really look, and, enjoyed and, it. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing that's worth pointing out, though, is that, like, for so long, and, like, look, growing up in a Western culture, you do, like, you, you can't help but consume kind of Western media, particularly American media, and we've all watched the films where Russia is the bad guy and America yeah. or, or the West is the good guy kind of thing. So you, you can't help but have that kind of mindset, and by and large, that, that's how it is. And But I think the, the thing that we have to remember is that Putin particularly has been the counterweight to that kind of American imperialism that we're all living through. Like I think Paul mm. Howard said on a podcast a little while back that like we're living in the age of the American Empire. Yeah. And while 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 Putin, for all his good or all his bad or whatever, <laughs> is what he is, he he's the only world leader that's been able to successfully counterweight the power of America. Mm. So I don't know, take from that what you will. Um I'm not saying I'd vote for the guy, but there's definitely an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to listen to that and all our previous other 220 plus podcasts you can go to any podcast provider search wts pod you go to wtspod.com and you get us on stitcher podcast republic podbean apple podcasts and um, anywhere else spotify and um, we're at twitter at wts pod 
we did a poll this week about, uh, that we will be discussing more on our Christmas special about oh, celebrations, yes. Quality Street, Roses, Heroes. Celebrations won by 1%, 29% of the vote. Um, yeah. But we will be discussing with our in-house residents, Paul Howard and Gary Michael, at our Christmas special. Um, but he's at Dan Joe Murray. I'm at Merrigan Mania. Until next time, this yeah. has been What's the Story podcast. Don't Clear forget. Eyes. No, well, hang on. Don't forget. Oh, sorry. There's, there's a public health message that has to go into all these don't podcasts. Don't forget your growing grass. Exactly. For the foreseeable future, lads. Don't forget. It's a hygiene issue. And it is Men's Health Month in November. So check yourself, but also, you know, treat yourself. Treat yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> go to manscaped.com and enter the code WTSPOD. You'll get 20% off and free shipping. And uh, I have to say, life is better when life is smooth. <laughs> Until next time. Clear eyes. All hearts. Shave balls. Woohoo! <laughs> Too sweet. <laughs>